Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This week's Gag and Pod has the Matildas on top of the world and Manchester City on top of Europe. We welcome in former Matilda Amy Duggan and former Premier League star Thomas Sorensen to break down all the big talking points of the week. The relegation battle is heating up. We'll talk about some of the wild cards that could save clubs from the drop and the assistant referee that's become the unexpected main character out of a thriller between Arsenal and Liverpool. I'm your host, Teo Pelizzeri. This is the Optus Sport Football Podcast. Let's get in to the Gag and Pod. We've got all sorts of topics on the Gagan Pod today, and we have two fantastic experts joining us to break it all down. We have former Premier League star Thomas Sorensen and former Matilda Amy Duggan. Thomas, thanks for making uh, a big effort to join us on the Gagan Pod <laughs> this week, but uh, certainly no shortage of interesting uh, football goings on to keep us preoccupied. Oh, yeah, there's uh, obviously the great result with the Matildas overnight. Uh, I'm you, you. pleased as well with... Man City winning uh, against Bayern, uh, all the Premier League uh, debacles and storylines. Uh, I'm just glad to be back from holiday because uh, there's so much to get stuck into. And Amy Duggan, a similar sort of situation for you. I imagine that uh, you are on cloud nine today. How can you not be happy this morning when the Matildas beat the number four ranked team in the world, England, the European champions, and didn't just beat them, but did a really great job to do that convincingly 2-0. So yes, I am having a good day, regardless of whatever else happens. Let's start with the Premier League, though. And Thomas, you did flag what has gone on in the Champions League because Manchester City, a really dominant win against Bayern Munich. We are recording this show in the middle of a Champions League midweek. So we will flag that we're not going to be across the results of the Thursday morning games. But this was a real statement. I mean, the Champions League is the tournament that's evaded them, and now they've laid down a marker with this first leg. Firstly, would you say that it's over? Uh, no chance of a Bayern comeback in the second leg? Uh, no, uh, no you, you wouldn't think so. I think Man City have, have proven, I think over the last uh, two or three weeks, that they have turned a corner, and, and they have come to the business end of, of the season now. And I think... There's just this sense, you know, Haaland is back at, at full force. They've got this squad that they can just rotate. You know, they've got the FA Cup uh, coming up uh, fairly soon. And, you know, that's not going to be a hindrance because, you know, they're just going to play the, <laughs> the second string and, and make, make sure everyone is fresh. And, and I think that's, that's going to be the worry for, for, the peop- for the teams in the Champions League and, and for Arsenal. Uh, as well. I, I think they were amazing this morning, weren't they? Convincing in every way. Jack Grealish is just getting better and better as the season goes on and games continue. And as you said, with Haaland up front, he's always going to be a threat. They, um, you know, they really turned it on this morning and I don't think that Bayern will have enough um, 
in the return leg either. Well, uh, as far as how it affects their focus on the Premier League, uh, there is the assumption now that Arsenal have dropped points to Liverpool, that Manchester City are going to chase them down. Before we go through a little exercise to see just how likely that is, Amy, do you think it, it is now the case that Manchester City will reel in Arsenal in the Premier League race as well? Oh, I think they'll they'll definitely try, and I think really all of this sits on that match where they face each other on the 27th of April. I think that will really set the teams apart. That will be a big one. Um, obviously, City's run home is probably a little bit easier. Um, I know you want to get into that in just a moment. I think it's hard to be out front and stay out front, and Arsenal will do all they can, but as we've seen, slip-ups happen, and um, when you're the hunting rather than the hunted, it's uh, it's a lot more fun. Thomas, same question to you. Um, is the title race now Manchester City's advantage here? I think it is. Um, you know, it's it's always uh, you know it's always easier when you have the experience. And, and Man City have been in this situation so many times. It's a new thing for Arsenal. Uh, so that comes the closer you get, you can you can nearly grasp <laughs> the Premier League trophy. But it just gets harder and harder. And and as Amy pointed out, that game on the 27th, uh, you know, if Arsenal can win that, obviously I think, you know, they'll go from strength to strength from there, but it's it's it, it's at uh, Man City, the way they're playing, they're, City have won the last two games uh, against Arsenal this season. Yeah, it, it's, it's uh, if, I'm hoping it's gonna be right down to the wire, that's what we want, and, and I'm hoping they're gonna chase them down and we'll see a, a, a final day decider. Well, let's see if we get to that final day. I'm going to read Manchester City's remaining games and either of you can stop me when you want to make a case that they are going to not win. So uh, next up, relegation threatened Leicester City at home. After that, the second leg against Bayern Munich. Then they've got the FA Cup semi-final against Sheffield United. Uh, then they have uh, the game on the 27th of April against Arsenal at home. No one's stopping me yet. That's the only one I think they may drop, Teo. I think, you know, you're going to continue because there's Fulham, West Ham, yep. Leeds at home, Everton away, Chelsea at home, and then Brentford away. Like, it's almost a dream run home for them, isn't it? Bar playing the relegation teams. So, um, yeah, the only game I think that they could possibly drop or share points perhaps is is that game against Arsenal on the 27th day. Thomas, did you hear a single game there where you hear them dropping points? <laughs> uh, you know, not the form they're in, um, but we've seen it earlier in the season. They, they went to Not- Nottingham Forest. Uh, I think they had uh, 40 shots on goal and, and uh, you know, didn't come away with a win. So, so. You know they've they've you know at times they've they've dropped some weird results, but but you just sense that they they're not going to do it in this running. Um, you know at least that's my feeling. And, and and yeah, looking at it, Brentford away, Brighton away, the last two games of the season, yeah, on paper. But but you also know those teams might not have anything to play for, and and then suddenly that dynamic can change a bit. So, uh, yeah, I, I agree with Amy. I think it's, on paper, a dream run-in. Uh, it definitely compared to Arsenal's. Well, we won't do the same thing for Arsenal because <laughs> they have their own challenges. But uh, what did you make, Thomas, of just the, the ebb and flow of that game? It was one of the wildest of the season, of course. Most Salah missed a penalty. Uh, Ramsdale made some incredible saves. And, and Liverpool had some uh, pretty uh, eyebrow-raising misses. Darwin Nunez, uh, a, a one-on-one, and then Canate right at the end of the game where he just couldn't will the ball over the line. I mean, this, this game had it all, 
But should it have been Arsenal losing rather than escaping with a draw? It probably should have ended that way. Um, you know, looking at the first 20, 30 minutes, <laughs> Arsenal were all over Liverpool. I thought they were, you know, uh, you know, that worry we've had about Liverpool all season was there for everyone to see the first 20, 30 minutes. Uh, but then for some reason, Arsenal... Yeah, just uh, let Liverpool back in the game and, and credit to Liverpool. They took it to them and, uh, you know, Ramsdale, I think it's been an unsung hero. You know, he's, he's had a, a little bit of criticism here and there, but I think overall in this game, he definitely saved them with, with uh, some quality keeping and uh, probably some bad finishing from Liverpool as well. So, you know, overall, I think Liverpool should, should probably be disappointed not winning it. I think they were certainly the better team, absolutely, in the second half. Ramsdale, as you said, was incredible, like clawing, pouring saves. That one where he hits it right and, you know, tips it over right in the corner was amazing. And um, I think the, the there's a couple of turning points here in this match. Obviously, whatever was said at halftime really changed it because usually picking up points at Anfield is a good thing. Um, but as you said, when you're ahead to nil at the break, it really shouldn't be like this. So it really was a game of two halves. The other thing that um, I felt Arsenal did was give away a lot of ball in the second half plus the the substitutions and there's been a lot of talk about Odegaard and um, that substitution and did they invite more pressure onto themselves um, a lot of analysts are saying that this team plays worse when they're leading so I guess the big question is is this a mindset thing or maybe maybe it was the uh, elbow from the uh, from the linesman <laughs> at half time that set it all off that sparked Liverpool into action Fired from Constantine Hasidakis <laughs> Oh, my God. I've never seen anything like it. Well, let's turn our attention to that because, as you say, Thomas, Konstantin Hatsidakis, the assistant referee, the altercation with Andy Robertson, he's been stood down pending the investigation, so won't uh, referee again until that gets resolved. There's been lots of zoomed-in footage and still photography to try and work out exactly how serious this elbow to the throat was. But what was your immediate takeaway? You've been out there in the heat of battle in the Premier League environment with referees that have come through the pressure cooker to rise to the highest level. What is it like uh, in that situation where you might have a confrontation with a referee? You know, I've been there um, and and I'm sure, you know, I've said things, um, you know, directly to a referee that was probably, yeah, that was was, uh, (laughs) probably past uh, what what should have been said. And and I'm sure there's been referees that just wanted to slap me. But, you know, this is where you just can't cross that line as a player, as a fan, as a referee. Um, you know, you have to contain that sometimes frustration. Uh, and, and it just looked like, I think Andy Robertson, I think he said something. He must have, you know, been in his face, argued about something, and uh, he just lost control. Uh, and, and I th- you know, I, I, I hope he's going to pay for it. You know, we saw Mitrovic get eight match ban. You know, I could see something similar. I know it's been talked about, uh, but at least some sort of punishment because you, you just can't cross that line. And, uh, and uh, when you do, um, the punishment is harsh. I, 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 for his sake, I hope it, it's not going to cost his refereeing career because, you know, we all make mistakes. But, you know, I, I think definitely in the short term, he'll see some punishment. Oh, I totally agree with you, Tom. Absolutely. Especially when you've already got the Mitrovic case, uh, you know, where he did shove the ref and get the eight weeks, as he said. My question is... Um, you know, refs are usually pretty good at holding on to that. And you do see Robertson walk towards him. Some people say you can almost see him try and grab him. Would he have actually thrown the elbow up if he wasn't feeling threatened? That's the only, uh, you know, is it self-defense is the only thing I think he can try and play uh, 
as this goes through the process. Um, but as you said, as the investigation continues, I think we'll we'll see um, Hatsadakis taking a bit of a break on the sideline for quite a while. Well, I'm interested in this, Thomas. You're saying could it cost him his career? A lot of the argument in the English press has been that the level of scrutiny uh, and also obviously the, the pile-on that comes with doing anything that is against Liverpool means that he's already suffered enough. Are you buying into, into that theory <laughs> that just him being named and him sort of becoming a, a lead protagonist where normally an assistant referee should more or less remain anonymous is actually its own punishment in this instance? You know, again, I, I, you know, when we see the footage, um, when we got the evidence, uh, which is quite clear, like the, the footage I've seen looks, uh, you know, there's definitely not a push from Robertson and uh, whatever is said is said, but, but you can't throw an elbow and, and he, he did that. So I think he needs some sort of punishment. Um, whatever that is, uh, you know, they'll have to probably within the refereeing uh, fraternity, they have to, you know, go hard on it, but it because it can't happen again. Uh, I can't remember from my career something similar happening. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I've had a referee put sort of his hands to someone's chest just to calm them down, but I haven't had anyone thrown a scene, throwing punches or elbows or anything. So uh, I think, too, I think he needs, uh, he needs some sort of punishment. He's going to get punishment when he comes back anyway, though, isn't he, Thomas? Because you can even imagine as a linesman, every time he makes a call from now on, the players are going to be, you know, giving him grief and you can imagine the crowd jeering him. It's going to come either way. I find this I find this fascinating, though, because uh, obviously when you become a, sort of an identity as a referee, uh, it is very hard to shake. And as you say, you do carry that with you for the rest of your career. Um, just how detrimental could this be, Thomas, in terms of, Maybe Liverpool might request he's never appointed to one of their games again. We know that Jose Mourinho was really big, particularly with UEFA, more so with the Premier League, about requesting specific referees not do Chelsea games. Uh, This is the sort of thing that could be a real burden on the individual, can't it? It can, and and that's where I hope that Liverpool has some common sense and and, uh, look at it for what it is. Uh, It's not a... You know, I don't think there's any hatred towards Liverpool uh, in, in any way. You know, it's not like he... You know, he stamped on the badge or done something that that could hurt a lot of people. So, so I hope Liverpool. From what I've heard as well, uh, Andy Robertson hasn't pressed any charges up until this point. Um, you know, so I think they they're just letting you know it play out through the the proper channels, and and uh, I think good on them if they do, um, because as you say, all these things, whenever media drops the the bomb on someone you know it it can be a tough tough task and and a tough toll and 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 really be yeah psychologically be be really difficult and then as you said the pylon afterwards as well if if liverpool drop in then you got you know the fans and everything you know it'll just continue continue do you recall from your career a referee that you had a particularly good or bad uh, sort of dynamic with, like by name, someone that you would recognise or someone that you knew, or was it was it just sort of you know a different a different face and a different whistle every week? Yeah, to some extent, you know, there, there's obviously referees that Na- are name names, around. name names. Who was it? <laughs> you know, Dermot Gallagher. I think I, I had a few run-ins with him uh, over over his time and didn't always agree, but but I, I still had it. You know, he was a good referee, um, and, and sometimes it, it comes down to. You know, you know, certain games that you remember, you know, penalties that they gave away, which you thought was questionable. 
Um, and, and there were certain referees that, uh, you know, that, that you felt potentially when, when you were playing the Man United's away and, you know, the Chelsea's away, that they were giving them the, the benefit of the doubt all the time. Um, but, you know, I've never had any sort of personal grief with, with any referees. I've, you know, I've really just kept my distance for, for most of the time. Amy, you had the benefit of um, a lot of your career not being filmed or televised, so surely, <laughs> yes. surely you can tell us about referees that you had a, a run-in with. Uh, do you know, I can't remember a lot of them by name, but I can tell you there'd be occasions you'd turn up and you'd be like, oh, here we go again. You knew uh, that the minute you opened your mouth, um, I did get a few cards for dissent. So, I, you know, I'll own up to that now that I'm well retired. Uh, it's a and bit surprising. Also, <laughs> I, 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 I wouldn't have thought. A bit mouthy. Um, and also, you know, a few, a few challenges. Um, I, I like to look after my teammates. So if you went after one of my teammates, I wasn't afraid to, to go back and let you know that that wasn't okay. And I did cop a few cards for that. Didn't get that many red cards. So I can't complain too much about that as a defender. But um, yeah, look, they certainly ebb and flow the game, don't they? And they do have a they do have a mental impact. Sometimes you'll get a referee that you feel doesn't give your team a fair go ever. And you'll often find that the team that is leading does get the fall of the green or the rub of the green and decisions do go their way. So, um, you know, they do have an impact as far as saying, I don't want a referee to ever referees again. I don't know how a coach has that power personally. Um, it shouldn't It shouldn't be set like that. And if it is, good luck to the coach for being able to do that. But yeah, I had um, I had some run-ins with referees, but ultimately it's the same as the opposition, Teo. Uh, all friends off the park, no friends on the park. Amy, let's stay with you because you have been our Leicester City relegation correspondent this season. <laughs> and after the after the dismissal of Brendan Rodgers, they have uh, they, there was a rumour for a, about 24 hours that Jesse Marsh was at the front of the queue, but they ultimately opted for Dean Smith. Now, Dean Smith, whose record uh, over his four stints uh, in management, Walsall, 32% uh, win strike rate. Brentford, 39%, uh, finishing in October 2018. Aston Villa, he was there for the best part of three years, almost 40%. Norwich City, not so happy, 16 wins from 56, 29%. Leicester City, they currently sit on 25 points, two from safety. They don't need anything extraordinary from their last eight games. They just need two or three wins. Can Dean Smith be the man to get them for for Leicester? No, mate. No. Um, we're hoping for the managerial bounce. Well, good luck with that one because what a first-up fight he has. Obviously, you know, Manchester City straight up is a pretty tough ask, isn't it? Um, the story here is for Australia, for Harry Sutar, because we want him to be in the Premier League. So we want Leicester to win a few games. Uh, obviously, this was one of the teams that I had before the season that uh, I had earmarked as potentially, you know, low down the table. And that purely became because the Foxes had done the least amount of transfer business in the league in the offseason. Uh, we didn't see a late rush of additions. So, you know, Brendan Rodgers was working with the same squad uh, in pre-season throughout the season and they just, they haven't done enough. He, you know, is obviously going to be joined by... Craig Shakespeare and John Terry, they all coach together at Aston Villa, but they have six games and eight weeks to save this side from relegation. They can't get much worse, can they? They've lost eight of their last nine matches and sit two points outside, you know, two points inside the bottom three. So I can't see, you know, it, they would need all of Lady Luck on their side to make this work. But at least they've got uh, an easy three points coming up this weekend against Man City. So that, that's a good start. 
Well, looking at their fixtures, though, they have Wolves at home, Leeds away, Everton home, and West Ham at home. So they've definitely got teams around them in that massive fight against the drop, Thomas. Do you think Dean Smith, though, is the the pragmatist that can come in for an eight-game runway and totally change the trajectory of this Leicester team? Oh, you know, I, I agree with Amy. It's a tall task. I think, uh, you know, he, he really needs to put out his... Uh, his management uh, or player management skills um, and, and get the absolute best out of that squad. Because when, when you look at Leicester, it, it's been a selling club. You know, they've, they've, they've sold uh, their best players. Um, you know, Fofana went, uh, I think Kasper Schmeichel leaving was huge. Uh, the leadership, you know, you got uh, Johnny Evans, who's probably past his best. Vardy is not what he, he was in you know, you know, a couple of years ago, and 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 from what I heard from from Casus Michael is that the Madisons, you know, that he's he's not a leader. He, he's the talent. He, he's the the value that they'll probably try to sell in the summer, um, but he's not the leader uh, in the dressing room. And and I think that's what you can see now. I think it's the the, the that leadership and that spine they had. They're just a little bit all over the place. And, and I, I don't think Dean Smith can, can be the person that can galvanise that, sadly. Stay with us on the Gegen Pod. We'll talk about uh, a team in the relegation battle that is doing considerably better on the other side of this short break. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honouring highly requested new colours for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to the Gegen Pod. We've got former Premier League star Thomas Sorensen and former Matilda Amy Duggan on the show this week. And we talked about Leicester before the break. Let's talk about a team that is going in a much more positive direction, and that is Crystal Palace. An incredible 5-1 win away at Leeds United. Roy Hodgson's return is proving to be exactly the tonic that the team needed. Thomas Sorensen, the question for me is why is Roy Hodgson such a success? Ah, good old Roy. Um, You know... uh... Incredible, um, you know how he's come in, and uh, and I think there we can touch on on just the man management. Um, you know, I I had a an opportunity. He was down uh, visiting through the city group. He was down visiting Melbourne City. Um, I had a, a a quick chat with him. I was out watching him coaching some of the youth players, um, and I can see why he can come in and, and make a difference because he he was on their case. He was really good at coaching and 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 coaching the details to, to the players. And, uh, and and you could see he was able to lift them as well. So you're looking at, you know, a decent Crystal Palace side, but, but you're, you know, you're dependent on, on the attacking, you know, the, the Wilfred Saha, he, he's a huge part of that. And he's been sort of on a decline, really, on the Vieira. And, and, and now, you know, you're looking to, to get him back up. But he, he's, he's not really changed much. It, it's, it's the same... Players, um, more or less the same system he's playing as well. But 
you know, he's just getting more out of the players. And, and, and uh, I think it comes down to the detail and how he manages and, and, and the small changes he makes in training as well. And, you know, that's his experience. And, and you know, good, good luck. And, you know, it looks like he's working. Well, that's the one thing you can't buy, right, Tom? And that's experience. You know, 22 teams in eight countries. Um, he obviously got managerial bounce. And he does have another stat on his side I want to bring up with you. He's never been with a team that's been relegated. Um, so <laughs> that's got to be a positive sign. But that game against Leeds, I, I just, you know, it looked like it was going to be Leeds' way. They were leading in the, like the 43rd minute, I think it was. And you thought you were going to the halftime break and they managed to snag one back. And I think that brings an air of, oh, my gosh, we're in this and that confidence. And if you can get into the change room and build that confidence around those players and make them believe they can go out there, and they really did. It was like they turned it on in the second half and what a display it was. And I think, you know, everybody, whether you watched it live, you were like, oh, my gosh, am I actually watching this? Or you caught up with it in the mini match or the highlights on our Optus Sport app. Um, you, you know, when you opened the app and saw the scoreline, you were like, oh, wow, what happened there? Because I don't think we really expected it to be such a blowout. But on Roy Thomas, do you, given you've you've seen him in action, do you think it's tactical details? Like we've had stories on the Gegen Pot in the past about Mark Hughes coming in, and he was always trying to get defenders to show the winger inside, and the players in the team had always been coached to show the player outside, and it it just didn't sit well with the dressing room. Or do you think it is purely a communication thing, where it might be a very similar message to what Patrick Vieira was trying, but the players are more likely to listen to a new voice and potentially the same or a similar message coming from a new taskmaster. You know, I, th- I think a lot of the players were under him, you know, you know, at, the, at his last stint, and, and he brought in some of the players. Um, and, and, and I think, again, it's, it's not massive changes, but, but yeah, it's the small tactical things. You know, it's, it's, it's the set plays. It's, it's the small movements of, of certain players. And, uh, and I think he, he probably, you know, it's, he, he's... They're probably keeping the ball less and and being a little bit more counter-attacking. But but other than that, I don't think, you know, it it really just comes down to, uh, you know, lifting. I think Decore has has you know has come into his own as well. I think he he's he's improved under you know in the last couple of games, and um, you know it's. <laughs> It, it's hard to sort of pinpoint, but I think it's, it's the experience and, and, and just the small tweaks. I don't think he, he hasn't come in, come in and reinvented the wheel. He, he's, he's just looked at a few things and, and, uh, and, and also, I think, worked on certain players to get them back into focus, get them back up and give them some confidence. The one saving grace for Leeds is that their goal difference was considerably better than a lot of the other teams in and around the relegation zone before this 5-1 hammering. But Amy, Harvey Gracia, Leeds had been outperforming their XG considerably in his first few games in charge to the point where even the Leeds fans were saying, this might be a bit of false form and a bit of fool's gold. Don't get too carried away that Harvey Gracia is, uh, is the answer. I mean, how hard a crash back to earth is this result for them losing 5-1? It's a reality check, isn't it? An absolute reality check. And I think uh, this would be one that they probably don't want to go back and take a look at the video analysis on, but I think there's a lot of learning there. He's really struggling. Um, I I don't even, I I kind of feel like I need Bridgie here to give me the inside goss from the sidelines, like what is actually happening at the club? Because it's a season where I felt like Leeds should be further... 
so many people said they won't do well, they'll be down the bottom of the ladder. And I felt like they were at one stage, they were really gaining some traction. And then obviously, um, Jesse Marsh came in and we all thought he's got this big persona and he'll be able to build them and he'll drive them and he's very competitive and it it just didn't happen. Um, You saw the managerial bounce, but as you said, when you bounce up, you've got to come back down and he's hit the earth with a big thud. Well, we'll keep an eye on Leeds because for now, they are two points above the relegation zone and that could prove vital given how close it is with everyone taking points off each other. But off the pitch, Leeds have got another disaster. Their transfer budget, regardless of if they're a Premier League club or a Championship club next season, might be getting paid in lawsuits to Jean-Kevin Augustin, the player that they took on loan from RB Leipzig. They've been ordered to pay him more than £24 million in compensation. I mean, this is the sort of thing, Thomas, where you, I mean, you have a bit of a mind for sports business and, and club administration. This is a worse own goal than any potential own goal you could score on the pitch, surely. Yeah, and then they're trying to to to, to do a hit and run as well. You know, they they have uh, obviously committed to this deal when they were in the championship. He played, I think, forty eight minutes for Leeds. Then they got promoted and and actually realized, nah, we don't really need the player. And 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 looked at the deadline because of the COVID uh, extension of the season that the deadline of uh, I think 31st of June or 31st of May uh, had been uh, exceeded and the season they actually got promoted after that deadline and uh, so then they thought okay we can just uh, leave everything hanging and move on and and obviously Leipzig have said nah nah you you got a <laughs> you got a commitment you got to pay up. And then they forgot about the uh, the five-year deal that they had agreed with uh, Augustine, and what uh, an absolute shamble! I think somebody somebody's head should fall for this. Uh, this, you know, you've cost the the club forty million pounds uh, for nothing. So forty million pounds for forty-eight minutes—that that's what they've got. Yeah, it's it's crazy. He's making 80 grand per week for the next five years playing for someone else. But um, Kaz, obviously, quarter arbitration of sport are the ones that uh, ordered Leeds to pay this full five years at the 80K. As he said, Tom, the argument from Leeds came down to the window because his deal expired on the 30th of June. Promotion didn't occur until July 17. So Leeds were arguing that, you know, it wasn't there. The reason for the delay, though, was, of course, COVID. So that's what... Uh, you know the court has ruled that if it wasn't for COVID the promotion would have happened earlier and he would have been entitled to um, to be there so there was that obligation to buy I think they're only going to pay 18 million for him were they promoted um, but now he's, he's going to take the full five years at 80k a week not a bad job sitting you know playing for they Basel. have appealed though <laughs> so it, it's going to carry on I think uh, for, for the foreseeable future so we'll we'll, we'll see uh, so the only ones making money will be the lawyers, Tom. Oh, yeah. I am think they're always happy. It's stunning the drop-off in his career, though, because, I mean, he was at PSG. RB Leipzig identified him as a, a player for the future. And when they were ready to try and cash in on him, uh, Leeds were the ones that they got on the hook. And, and now he's playing for Basel in the Swiss Super League. Uh, this is someone who played for French youth teams for eight years, all the way through his youth. And now at age 25, it seems as though he's leveled off at a, a fairly underwhelming level, Thomas. And I guess Leeds United were the ones left uh, when the, holding the parcel when the music stopped and they got a very nasty surprise. Yeah, of course. And, and that's sometimes the, the gamble you take with, with young players. But, but I still don't understand why they... You know, I, I think you could go with a loan agreement with an option to buy, but, but a loan agreement with, uh, you know, you have to buy <laughs> if you get promoted i think 
you know, then you you lock yourself up, uh, and as they they probably very quickly realized because he only played 48 minutes that he he wasn't anyone that they were gonna really see as a, as as part of their future, and then then you're stuck there. So you got to just question the the people uh, doing these deals um, and why they did it, because it, it it to me it reeks a little bit of desperation. You, you there's a young player, there might be a few clubs after him. All right we can seal the loan deal by actually guaranteeing the payoff at the end. And, you know, now it comes back to haunt them. One more Premier League topic I wanted to raise because Aston Villa, they are on a four-game winning streak. They continue to climb up the table. They're now in sixth, which is an incredible run for them. But Wolves also, uh, they're four points above the drop. And as we mentioned, they've got Leicester coming up in a couple of games in one of those vital matches against the drop. But the form of both Unai Emery and Julian Lopetegui, Thomas, these Spanish managers that have come to the Premier League. We know that at Optus Sport, we're following La Liga that much more closely this season because we've got it on our screens. But it really is proving to be quite a successful managerial pathway. And if Javi Gracia can keep leads up, then I tell you what, Spanish managers are going to be all the rage in the coming off season, aren't they? Oh yeah, but you know Emery had uh, you know the not so great stint at, at Arsenal and probably learned uh, a fair few lessons about the league and and about a, an approach and, <clears throat> and and went back and had success at Villarreal and now he's 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 doing incredibly well at at, uh, at uh, Aston Villa and and you know I was looking into some of the stats and it, it's not like he's he's sort of massively improved them uh, across the board but. In the final third, um, they have uh, shot up massively in, in their chances conversion, uh, you know, the big chances. And and uh, I think uh, Optus Sport put up a, a great stat uh, and all the stats on Ollie Watkins because he, he's uh, been a transformation on the Emery. Uh, really, you know, an afterthought. Uh, Gerard, he, you know, he really fell, fell <laughs> Off, uh, off the radar a little bit under him, and and now he's he's banging in goals, um, you know, since, and uh, that's been the big big change. They're just more efficient, and and you you can hope that he can galvanise a few other players. Buendia, you know, he's never really been the player that they signed from from Norwich. Um, uh, Bailey as well, but they seem to slowly come to life now under Embry and. And they, they seem to sort of start to find a, that way that he wants to play. So it, it's, it's very, very exciting for me as a, as a former Villa player and Villa fan as well, you know, to, to see Villa really pushing for Europe now. Well, if I can just back that up, Tom, I was listening to an interview uh, with Emery and he states that confidence, newfound confidence is the key and that he just keeps readjusting their goals, but he's very bold and ambitious with those goals. So the first challenge when he came in was literally to get away from relegation. Uh, and once they'd achieved that, he then set their sights on the top 10, which he's obviously now achieved as well. So now, you know, the goal is European football. But I do want to put you with this one. Only Arsenal and Man City have claimed more points than Villa since Emery took over from Gerrard. Um, in fact, if you counted points since January, points and results since January, they'd be sitting third on the table with a goal difference of plus 10. So when you put it into that perspective, their, their um, you know, post-World Cup form has just been outstanding. And we probably haven't talked about them enough. Yeah, and, and you know, they've, they've been very consistent. They had that 4-2 loss at home to, to Leicester, which was a blip. But other than that, they, uh, you know, they've uh, you know, just 
been more consistent. And I think you look overall, like Tyrone Mings at the back was also struggling a little bit, but he's 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 come into his own as well and back to that strength that you saw him and Konza had. So I think overall, uh, you know, it's just a a, a big big improvement. Um, yeah, you know, so it's it's you know that's what good managers do. You know, we we see it in modern football all the time that managers you know makes they make the massive difference. Um, you know, they can elevate a team from mid table to pushing for Europe um, by giving people confidence, by the small changes, by actually getting the players to buy into the philosophy and and the goal setting and everything else and and uh, you know he's done it wherever he's been you know obviously the success in the europa league um arsenal you could question that but other than that he's, he's been brilliant and he's doing it again well i've held out for about half an hour here uh <laughs> just doing the warm-up act talking about premier league but amy duggan th- there's one reason that uh, we're having a podcast today and if it is of course France 2, Canada 1, Hervé Renard heading... No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. It's the Matildas. Um, I didn't even know that score, so thank you very much. Um, I've been so singularly focused. I knew there was a whole heap of other international games um, hitting hitting the pitch this, this... Well, today and overnight and this week, and I've been so focused on the Matildas getting this result, Teo, but how good is it? Well, I, that's the question I put to you. Put this in a bit of context here. What exactly can we take away from Australia 2... England nil. Confidence that we're on the right track. We just we just beat a top four nation, Euro champions, two nil. Yes, England had more possession, but we executed tactically the game plan so well. It was wonderful. We were, you know, we fought but not got into too much of the messy battle stuff. We kept the ball when we, you know, we kept the ball neat and tidy as much as we could took our chances when they come. And in fact, I think we could have put away a couple of more. So I think what this does is show that Australia is a threat. We are on the right track. And I do want to remind you, we had something like 700 caps not available for this game. That's a lot of experience not there. So you throw in the likes of Caitlin Ford um, into this as well. And you just, you know, it's wonderful. The one thing it, it does still leave that massive question mark over is Sam, because you go from that result against Scotland into this one, we really missed her in that first game and you see the spark and the leadership that she's bringing on the field and of course um, just her ability to to make those runs uh, and to put the ball away and um, she's yeah she's a real integral part of this team but but what a result with 99 days to go cool or not Amy um, how much of this is again the team went back to the 4-3-3 for the first time in a long time against Scotland and then went back to the 4-4-2 against England. Is, is this 4-3-3 uh, in the folder and the folder then thrown out of the window? Just, you know, and, and we stick, as uh, as Mike Bassett would say, with 4-4-F-N-2 up to the World <laughs> Cup because, I mean, this is the formation that uh, has coincided with Felstrom, uh, Jens Felstrom coming in as the assistant coach. Surely this is the tactical revolution that the Matildas will now stick with, given that they've only got, what, the France window uh, and then everything else will be behind closed doors between now and the World Cup. Yeah, that's right. Not long to go, just that one game against France in the middle of June. I'm with you, Teo. I like the 4-4-2. I like our overlapping fullbacks and that obviously, you know, Ellie was wonderful again today. Charlie Grant, man, 
you know, I, I said this and I'm going to put my hand up because when Charlie first came in, I said she's no Ellie Carpenter. And this is, you know, 12, 18 months ago. But Charlie has really stood up. She's um, put a hand up on both sides of the paddock and she will be fighting for a starting spot now. I truly believe that. And, you know, to see the joy on her face. Who's starting Well, that's spot? the big Steph, question. Steph Catley's <laughs> on the left or Ellie Carpenter's on the right, Amy? Well, and, and maybe Steph goes into the middle, but then you look, Claire Hunt is, um, and what a problem to have, by the way. Claire Hunt is being outstanding. Claire Polkinghorne's being, she was outstanding as well today. But, uh, you know, 12 months or 18 months ago, we were looking at this team going, we do not have enough depth in defense. And you look at that now and you go, we've got options. And that's really wonderful problem to have as a coach. As I said, I love the 4-4-2. I loved both Ellie and Charlie getting down the flanks. I thought our midfield was good today. I think the pressing style, uh, you know, when those triggers go off, the, the way that we press Every single player has to be on board for that to happen. And I saw that much more today than I did in the Scotland game. And so, you know, that formation seems to work best for us. Just on England, uh, last week with Pien Muhlenstein, I suggested that England asking to take 26 players to the World Cup was an indicator that not all was well in their camp. Uh, Serena Wiegman, uh, Wiegman said this was a learning experience against a tough opponent that played well, just yeah, gave credit to Australia and didn't really give a great deal of insight into the problems that England encountered. And they weren't great against Brazil either. Uh, probably should have won the game in the 90 minutes, but coughed up a late equaliser and then won the finalissima on penalties. But they didn't play brilliantly in that game either. What's wrong with England and how worried should they be in the countdown to the World Cup? Yeah, really great question. I don't know what's going on behind closed doors. Obviously, they've had a couple of big injuries that took out some some lead players. I didn't think Leah Williamson played like her normal self today. They had a lot of ball um, being cut out by Australia, but was that, you know, tactics from Australia reading into this and understanding how they play and being able to do that? I'd like to give some credit to our team for that. Um, I know Emma Hayes said that she thought this was the most sloppy game England had played. Um, They were on a 30-game you know, they were on a 30 game streak and we've snapped that. So what's going on inside the England camp? I don't mind as long as Australia can get the results like that and that they continue and they don't work it out before the World Cup. Um, You always want to see. Let's get the England press going so they can uh, (laughs) self-destruct. Oh, look, they're still, they're still, you know, they've still got an amazing side with amazing players. Um, you know, Chloe Kelly was still smacking in a whole lot of great crosses today. I think there was a, a few chances England probably could have put away and put just wide. It's not like they didn't have opportunities today, but credit to Australia defensively as a block. They worked really well. They cut out a lot of ball and they put pressure on England. And I think they, the, the pace of the game was pretty quick. So I feel like them being forced and not completely being in control. And I also want to bring up, this is the first time they've been behind. They've not leaked more than one goal, I think, in those 30 games. So they were coming from a place where they they didn't know how to fight back. And so it probably is a really big lesson for them because it won't always be their way. Now, obviously, we have assumed uh, from the moment England won the Euros and and survived the pressure cooker of the games against Spain and Germany that they were a team under Serena Wiegmann that were, you know, mentally maybe the best team in the world and ready to take on the United States. But have they actually reached a tipping point where the expectations of them are too great? And and the context I put this in is The Guardian and Susie Rack wrote a story in between the Brazil game and the Australia game with the headline, England's Euro 2022 triumph had little impact on inner city girls report fines. Is England being loaded up the players with too much pressure to change society 
rather than just play football. I mean, I found that to be such a strange overreach there that, yes, they've had a massive cultural impact, but is the English press perhaps loading them up with too much expectation and following a very similar path to the men's team that obviously have every uh, major tournament, the big cycle of build up to be the best in the world, but then tear down if they can't meet the expectations. It's about headlines, isn't it? It's about, you know, grabbing headlines I mean, I'm and sorry, creating news. It's, it's The Guardian. Since when was The Guardian about headlines? <laughs> I, I think that, okay. that that's probably actually legitimate news. But why would you write that about the team? Their job is to play football. I haven't seen the article, so I, I can't comment on it. But I agree with you. Their job is to play football. I don't think they're overly, you know, their number one priority is not to go out there and change the game. Their number one priority is to go out there and win as many games as they can. And they hit a stumbling block today. They came up against a team that understood their tactics and did a great job of being able to hold them, nick a goal, and then they had to come from a position that they weren't familiar with. I think it's as simple as that. They didn't know how to break down a block, and there are lots of teams that don't, um, but they didn't know how to break down the block, and Australia took the chances. They made mistakes, and they were punished for them. Does that mean that they're not going to be that they're not going to bounce back? Absolutely not. They're a wonderful team full of some of the well, most of the world's best players. They're playing in the the top league in the world. They're playing for Barcelona. Um, I think at the end of the day, this team will bounce back, and they will be a force to be reckoned with at the World Cup. But don't take anything away from Australia's performance today. Thomas, in, in your Premier League years, how much did the England international players feel the burden of that? external noise from the English press. I mean, I guess you had the advantage of playing international football for Denmark and being under the scrutiny of their press, but is it that much worse when it's the English tabloids and the English media that are loading international players up with that level of expectation? Yeah, it, it certainly has an effect. Um, and I, I think you could you could see it every time. Uh, it, it was something that was lurking in the back of players' minds, uh, you know, especially around penalty shootouts, uh, the lead up into World Cups, because, you know, it's like Amy said, it's about headlines. It's, it's about creating storylines, uh, you know, players, uh, their wives, uh, coaches, fans. And, um, you know, it's not always pleasant. And I, I think the, the, the English press has a, uh, a certain way of going about it that, that can be quite nasty. I, I don't think... The women's team will, will feel it in the same way. I think that there is a, you know, I hope there is a great respect of, of how important it is for, for, for women's football. And, and, uh, and uh, yeah, you actually, you'll try to, to grow the women's game. You're not trying to tear it down by, by being overly, um, you know, overly critical. Uh, and uh, you know, I, 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 my sense is that you know that there's great excitement uh, in England about the team and everything else, and then they they do have a role to play in society, but it shouldn't be a burden. It it should it shouldn't be their job. It, their job is to play. I agree with that as well. You know, they they uh, they are front runners and and uh, you know t- trailblazers, but you know let them do it on the pitch and and. They'll be one of the favourites as well. But I think it just opens up the World Cup. It makes you even more excited. And I, I'm, I'm so pleased with the uh, Matildas that they uh, had the, this result for their confidence um, leading into it. And, and just that you know you can beat the, one of the best teams in the world. You know, what a great feeling to go into a tournament, uh, not having that doubt that you can't do it. One other result which really stands out. Germany beaten 2-1 at home by Brazil. Amy, um... Is this a case of uh, 
all the Matildas rivals on their side of the draw are starting to hit the skids. Australia <laughs> Australia <laughs> beats on. England. Hey, Canada 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 lose to France. I know they're both on Australia's side of the draw, but Australia will play definitely will play Canada, only maybe might play France. And yeah. now Germany, who have loomed over I think Australia's half of the draw as the team to beat. Being beaten by Brazil, is this maybe evidence of a Brazil revival or worrying signs for Germany? Uh, Both, I would say. (laughs) Absolutely both. You probably wouldn't expect Brazil to beat uh, Germany, but then coming off the um, Felicima final against England, they did a really great job. As you said, they fought back in the 90th minute, only losing on penalties. So they have shown this time around that they can stand up against some of the best teams in the world. And I think this is the point. The game is getting closer and closer and closer at the top. There are some other results. Obviously, Spain beat China this morning 3-0. They'd beaten Norway uh, a few days ago 4-2. USA beat Ireland. I think they play again tomorrow. So To, to be fair, we, we don't have to worry about either of those two because we wouldn't <laughs> we wouldn't meet them until the final, Amy. They're on the other side of the drawer. It's fine. Relax. Yeah, you don't have okay. to worry what about, about Denmark? Spain or the USA. What about Denmark beating Sweden for the first time? Yes, away no, Denmark. Be- beating, them. Japan, beating Japan as well this morning. <laughs> You know, hey, we're, hey, we're, we're, we're forced. Yes. I, 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 <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm saying that with a little bit of a... Uh, no, no, to be fair, Denmark's <laughs> on Australia's side of the draw, so we have to take them seriously as well. But I mean, the other the other interesting result is Sweden were really upset about drawing 3 all with Norway. They thought they'd won it in stoppage time, um, only for Frieda Marnham, the Arsenal star, who we've seen in the WSL all season, scoring in the 96th minute to grab a 3 all draw. So... Amy, we're running out of uh, form line to read into ahead of the Women's World Cup. But one thing, regardless of the form line, is that we know the stadiums are going to be filling up and we know there's going to be a a lot of movement around (laughs) how the nation supports this World Cup. So take us inside Allianz Stadium on Tuesday. What was going on there? It's 100 days till the Women's World Cup Australia and New Zealand. There were celebrations, not just at Allianz Stadium in Sydney, but also at other sites uh, and other major host cities across Australia and New Zealand, all there to celebrate, all there to whet your appetite. Finals tickets, like the, the final release of tickets, also went on sale at midday. Oh, my gosh, if you sat on there, I take my hat off to you. Super hard to get. Um, I've had so many text messages of people who actually missed out. They'd already sold, you know, 630,000 tickets. Before that, there was another 800,000 went on sale. Uh, The final will be sold out. That opening game is obviously sold out. Um, What is 100 Days about? Reflecting on where we've come from and celebrating the advancements in the games, but also acknowledging there is still a way to go in some areas. And if I can touch on a couple of those points, tell you one of them, for example, only 40% of facilities nationwide have appropriate infrastructure at grassroots level for females. And that's even further skewed when you drill down because here in New South Wales, that's like 24%. So, you know, there's some serious investment needed. And I know Annika Wells has come out fairly strongly about how we need to go about that. But there's some there's some serious investment needed. If we're pushing for gender parity, which we are in, you know, being the first community level sport to, to push towards gender parity, we need help in being prepared for that surge in player numbers. Um, the interest is there. The brand of the Matildas is growing. Results like this can only help that cause. But geez, football is in a great place and, you know, about to fill stadiums with amazing talent from across the globe for the world's biggest show this year.
Yeah, and I, and I think that's what the hundred days is about. It's 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 about it's about creating that excitement and and awareness as well. I think everyone listening, tell your friends, tell your family, because there's there, there's a lot of people that actually are just starting to become aware that the World Cup will go on and 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 how big it's actually gonna be. Uh, and you know, everyone should be so excited, so proud that we're gonna have such a an amazing tournament in this country. And don't just worry about, of course, you want to watch the Australian games, but if you missed out to tickets for Australia, don't be afraid. There are tickets to so many other great nations competing and go and have a look at the different styles and the different stars from around the world. And and of course, if you don't get tickets, don't worry, because we will have every minute of every game for you live on Optusport. And on that plug, I think it's a perfect opportunity to wrap up the Gegenpod. Uh, Thomas Sorensen, thank you for your insights today. And Amy Duggan, uh, you'll be just bouncing off the walls for the next couple of months, I imagine. Uh, so enjoy the rest of your day while the uh, adrenaline is still at its absolute maximum. Thank you, Tay. Thanks, Theo. A big thanks to Thomas Sorensen and Amy Duggan. The Premier League continues with a 9.30pm kickoff on Saturday night when Aston Villa host Newcastle United. There's a five-game goal rush from midnight and then Leicester City host Manchester City from 2.30am on Sunday. Arsenal go to West Ham from 11pm on Sunday night, while you can see Nottingham Forest against Manchester United from 1.30am on Monday and Liverpool's visit to Leeds at 5am on Tuesday. All times are Australian Eastern Standard Time. La Liga continues with a 5am kickoff on Saturday when Rayo Vallecano play Osasuna and you can see Real Madrid away to Cadiz at 5am on Sunday and Barcelona's trip to Getafe on Monday at 12.15am. All times Australian Eastern Standard Time. The WSL is still on break but returns on Thursday, April 20 with Manchester United's blockbuster clash against Arsenal. So keep that one in your calendar for an early morning get-up. And the J-League and K-League continue on Optus Sport. Make sure to jump on the Optus Sport website or app for broadcast details. Make sure to hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate us five stars while you're there. I've been your host, Teo Pelizzeri. Thank you for your company on the Optus Sport Football Podcast. This was The Gegenpot. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.